Hello, everyone. Um, just a housekeeping note before we get started with this morning's presentation. There are a few sessions that have been moved to different rooms down here on the third floor. So just as a reminder, if you have the app on either your smartphone or your tablet, you can check that for revisions or visit the registration desk on the fourth floor for any questions. This morning's presentation is titled Differential Diagnosis of Myelopathy. Today's speaker is Dr. Charles Argoff. He is a professor of neurology and the director at Comprehensive Pain Center um, in the Department of Neurology at Albany Medical Center in New York. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I just want to warn you um, that this is not really going to be focused on treatment, so if you still want to stay, that's cool. Um, but when I was asked to develop this topic, it was really to go over the differential diagnosis. And of course, I just want to be as clear as I can about that. Okay. This probably has to be turned on. There we go. Got it. Okay, so uh, these are my disclosures. I, it, I can't imagine how any of these relationships are going to influence what I'm about to talk about, but you just let me know. Um, we are going to, this is going to be heavy on going over the causes of myelopathy, because that's in fact what the title it is. Um, we'll talk about uh, the approach to making the diagnosis of myelopathy, and we will talk about available treatments, but... It, um, it's not, I think, ultimately, um, much of what we see from a myopathic point of view is either missed or is either, I mean, it's the most un unbelievable condition that's missed all the time. Um, and I will try not to be anything but um, dignified about that um, because it would really blow your mind. If you don't examine your patients, you will not know, not, not know. If a person does not examine the person in front of them, one cannot determine what is wrong with that person. And I will just say, no, in, it's very clear in the evaluation of somebody with a myelopathy, and for those of you who may need to, uh, we, we, who may benefit from having a clear definition of what that means, and I'll get to that in just a second, and I mean this only in the healthiest professional way, if, you, if we don't examine a patient, you will not, we will not know what's wrong with that person. Um, and so in myelopathy, you really need to know this. Um, it's also important to do so to, or to correlate what you see. Here is a lesion within the spinal cord, and this will cause myelopathic symptoms. Um, we'll come back to what that definition is. So. I'm going to go through a very extensive differential first, and then I am going to concentrate on cervical spondylitic induced myelopathy, because probably in all of our experiences, that's what we see most often. I am a neurologist by training. Are there other neurologists here right now? No? Okay. Uh, there usually aren't that many of us, but um, reason why, but you're going to see many you're going to think esoteric, and you have every right to criticize me in any way that you want to on the um, evaluation forms. But if 
we don't think, I learned this from one of my professors um, when I was in residency, if you, don't, if you don't think about something, you'll never make that diagnosis. And ultimately, um, uh, we should try not to miss diagnoses and consider all the things. So from a compressive acute cause, meaning sudden cause of myelopathy, trauma is extremely important to consider. An epidural abscess or hematoma um, can occur as a result, the hematoma can occur as a result of trauma. Um, we, I, I take care of a 70-year-old gentleman who has been wheelchair-bound now for over two decades, who originally presented with vague complaints of uh, uh, mid-thoracic spine pain, um, um, was discharged from hospital, from emergency rooms without any evaluation, and over the over a course of a couple of weeks developed paraplegia, was not evaluated extensively, and wound up having an epidural abscess that by the time it was removed, he lived, but he remained paraplegic. So these are things to think about. An epidural neoplasm, so either a primary tumor. Um, um, I take care of somebody who had, um, who had an epidural astrocytoma, uh, astrocytoma rather, with, a, with, with compression of the spinal cord, um, and um, wound up having that successfully removed and being able to go ahead and bike all over the country uh, with successful surgery. So might, one might see primary lesions or metastatic lesions, important to consider. Uh, vertebral compression fractures, of course, depending upon where that occurs. If it occurs in the lumbar region, keep in mind myelopathy is a disorder of the spinal cord, and the spinal cord ends in most of us by L1. So the cauda equina, which looks named you know, horse's tail, are the nerve roots that come out of the distal end of the end of the spinal cord. But the lumbar spine in most people does not protect the spinal cord. Uh, disc herniation. So we see um, uh, disc herniations. You know, um, many people may present with arm weakness or arm complaints and gait instability and have cervical spine-related disc herniations. Again, the lumbar disc herniations are not typically going to cause myelopathy, but what's often overlooked is the thoracic spine. And so people may present with lower extremity complaints, even back pain. Remember, the, uh, um, uh, upper motor neuron problems, putting pressure on the spinal cord results in increased muscle tone. Um, and that increased muscle tone or spasticity can manifest itself initially as stiffness in the legs, pain in the back. People, um, I'm 57. Um, there's no way that if I did an MRI of my lower back, being a runner for many years, that one does not, I, one would not see significant degenerative changes in my lower back. What happens very typically is that somebody around that age as well, or in their 40s, will go and say, I have back pain. And not to be ridiculous about it, but if a person doesn't take the time to really examine somebody, I'm not talking about three hours or two hours, I'm talking about 10 minute exam, where you're actually doing upper and lower extremity neurological function and, and reflexes and asking about bowel and bladder function, you'll miss the fact, one might miss the fact, because it's a generic you, um, that this person has increased reflexes, is not presenting with a radiculopathy, but more of a spinal cord problem, and when they get their imaging study, this has happened to patients of ours, when they get an imaging study on their MRI, they wind up getting um, surgery because they get a lumbar spine MRI, they have some degree of degenerative changes, they're told they need a fusion, 
and they've missed the fact that they have a thoracic or above disc herniation or issue. So this happens quite often, or often enough. Spinal subluxation or spondylolisthesis, we're gonna talk about cervical spondylosis and things like that, but spinal subluxation can occur in a post-traumatic state. Spinal subluxation can occur with certain autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, what are some vascular etiologies that can present acutely? Stroke, stroke of the spinal cord does occur. Um, the spinal cord vascular anatomy is such that we have very rich, we have very rich um, um, vascular supply in the cervical spinal cord region and a very, and very rich supply in the lumbar region and we have a watershed area in between in the thoracic region. And that leaves the thoracic spinal cord to um, it's, uh, vulnerable. And so spinal cord strokes do occur. Um, AVMs or arteriovenous fistulas of the dura can occur. Um, so those, those two there, cavernous malformation, so vascular etiologies. What about viral infections? Well, the gray matter, the gray matter is where your anterior horn cells are. The white matter is the myelinated pathways leaving the spinal cord or coming in from outside. Poliovirus can be associated with a myopathic um, uh, presentation. Enteroviral infections, Coxsackie virus A and B. Um, anybody know where Coxsackie is named after? Why it's called Coxsackie? Right, Coxsackie, New York. The only reason I brought it up because um, it's one exit below us on the thruway. It, it's right. <laughs> it's like near home, uh, but anyway, well, West Nile, West Nile virus can present with myelopathy. Um, Japanese encephalitis, you know, various encephalitides uh, can present that way. White matter infections, um, herpes simplex virus can be associated. Varicella zoster virus um, can be associated not only with direct infection but also vasculitis of the of blood vessel of the spinal cord, causing spinal cord infarction. I've seen both of those. Um, cytomegalovirus, um, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, influenza, this can occur after a flu. Bacterial infections can acutely cause myelopathy, including that associated with mycoplasma infections, syphilis, uh, tuberculosis, TB, which is in certain pockets of the country has seen a resurgence, and Lyme. I live in a Lyme endemic area, and a couple times a year we'll see somebody present with Lyme disease or a transverse myelitis-like picture uh, where uh, um, they start to experience lower extremity symptoms um, and um, um, they have positive Lyme titers. Cryptococcal infections or fungal infections, coccidioides uh, uh, can occur, blastomyces, uh, candida species, aspergillus, and other more uncommon fungal infections can occur as well. There's a recent uh, report of somebody um, who experienced in our area histoplasma infection and a myelopathy as well. There are generally inflammatory conditions, so or demyelinating, so multiple sclerosis sometimes presents with um, transverse myelitis, a spinal cord presentation first. Um, when somebody presents that way, then we certainly need to go and look for other areas in the nervous system where there may be de demyelination. Uh, so anybody presenting with transverse myelitis who may also fit the history of MS should be imaged, not only brain, but also cervical spine. Neuromyelitis optica, we just have, uh, we, uh, also known as NMO, um, is another myelopathic disorder. It's an autoimmune disorder that is associated with not only um, uh, cranial nerve abnormalities, but also uh, spinal cord issues as well. And I was the teaching attending for our, 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 our um, house staff um, in training, neurology residents at the 
most of August, and we had actually two people on our service with neuromyelitis optica. There are NMO antibodies that can be evaluated and sent for. And there's also NMO negative uh, uh, neuromyelitis optica as well. Transverse myelitis is um, kind of an overlapping condition because many inflammatory, even infectious etiologies can result in what exactly what it sounds. It sounds almost like across a transverse a, a section of your spinal cord, um, there, there is inflammation and you'd see enhanced uh, signaling on T2-weighted imaging on an MRI and this, these individuals will, will present with a week or two or three of tingling in their extremities, progressive motor impairment in some instances, um, sometimes bowel and bladder complaints, um, but it is often associated with MS, it is often associated with Lyme, it is often associated, it's been seen post-viral or post-infectious and post-vaccination. So there are a lot, a lot of different settings to, to think about this. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis can present in part with a myelopathy. Sarcoidosis. Um, um, uh, this is a, a um, um, neurosarcoidosis really does occur. <laughs> and um, um, in someone who has a history of sarcoid or who presents with a, a, a inflammatory, with, a, with a myelopathic picture, um, it might be, and has a history or has a chest x-ray that suggests it, it might be worthwhile considering it. Uh, an inflammatory myelopathy can occur as a part of a paraneoplastic condition as well. Uh, lupus has been associated with myelopathic um, antiphospholipid antibodies uh, syndrome, Sjogren's syndrome, mixed connective tissue disease, so the variety of connective tissue disease and autoimmune disease, Bichette's disease. We just saw a young 17-year-old whose mother has Bichette's disease um, who presented to our hospital um, with Bichette's disease manifesting itself as a myelopathy. This has happened also in early August. So these things are, may not be the most common thing, but they're worthwhile thinking about. Um, toxic and metabolic causes include um, heroin-induced myelopathic disorder, conzo, uh, which I confess I know very little about, <laughs> um, arachnoiditis after different contrast agents are used, uh, methotrexate toxicity. Keep in mind that methotrexate is actually approved uh, for intrathecal use for a variety of conditions, so it still is being used. Uh, cytaramine toxicity, um, amphotericin B. Remember, amphotericin is also known as amphoterable because of all its side effects. Um, other infectious considerations include HIV. Um, I've seen people with HIV who had zoster infection to develop HIV-related zoster infections and vasculitis and spinal cord infarction. So the HTLV is uh, um, another viral infection that's been associated with, and actually presents most typically HTLV um, with a, um, a, a myopathic kind of presentation. Syphilis has been associated, and all these others that I've mentioned already. Vitamin B12 deficiency, uh, thiamine deficiency, folate deficiency, vitamin E deficiency, copper deficiency, uh, cyanide poisoning, Hexacarbon toxicity, people have been sniffing glues. Genetic etiologies, so we take care of a number of people in our center with hereditary spastic paraplegia, um, for, of which there are some known causes, but nothing is really treatable. We take care of several families who have more than one family member. Um, and um, it's, it's making the diagnosis through family history and confirming the absence of other conditions. Um, 
adrenal myelineuropathy or uh, adrenal leukodystrophy can present with a myelopathic disorder. Crabbe's disease is another metabolic disorder. It's, it's galactocerebrosidase deficiency, which can affect the brain, the white matter of the brain, as well as the white matter of the spinal, as well as the spinal cord. Metachromatic leukodystrophy is another um, um, uh, genetically inherited um, um, uh, 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 metabolic neurological disease. Um, met methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase deficiency, or MTA MTHR uh, deficiency, can be uh, MTHF rather deficiency. Um, MTHFR. I'm trying to get the eponym right. Sorry. Uh, deficiency. And that's something that we should think about when we're, why is it, how is that related? Well, um, that is a, a genetically determined condition, but it, how many of you have ever um, evaluated for methylmalonic acid and other, when your B12 levels are normal, you can go take another step to see if that person, in fact, may have um, a genetic condition in which their B12 may look normal, but some of the substrates are not. Uh, all right, so. Uh, there are a number of other much more uh, uncommon conditions that I'm just going to go through very quickly. And the last is uh, spinal cerebellar degeneration and spinal muscular atrophy syndromes as well. <clears throat> now, ALS can present with a spinal form and without any bulbar conditions. Um, and ALS is uh, a motor neuron disorder. Uh, primary lateral sclerosis is a condition that really more affects the spinal cord and doesn't have as much brainstem involvement. Um, and Kennedy syndrome, which is also known as spinal bulbar muscular atrophy, can be associated. Um, so these are three examples of motor neuron disease um, presenting as a myelopathic disorder. So what? Well, here, here um, is um, an interesting issue. Um, as many as 5% of people with uh, ALS, this is old literature, have been diagnosed with cervical spondylitic myelopathy and have been treated surgically. So I've seen that occur. Um, this is a reference, uh, a statement. I've seen that occur. I've seen many people um, uh, operated on for spinal-related disorders um, who had MS, and they, they, they could not have been examined properly because if you'd examine this person, there's no way that somebody would have jumped to the conclusion that their lower back was the source of their complaints. And I think we hopefully all agree that if somebody does need spine surgery who has MS, you'd want to know that they have MS first. Because any surgical procedure you perform in somebody with MS can worsen their MS. So just another example of, 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 a, of, a, of a compressive lesion, in this case um, a degenerative etiology causing a spinal cord compression in the cervical spine and myelopathy. You can see the bright signal there. Um, is CSF, and you can see midway down this uh, picture the um, compression on the, spinal, on, on the spinal cord, and you can see the absence on both sides of, um, any, uh, of, of significant spinal fluid because that would either completely obstruct, but not in this case, uh, or, or, or decrease the flow around that area. So I'm going to concentrate a lot of the rest of the time on, on cervical spondylitic um, myelopathy. Um, and definition. Uh, uh, I'm just going to throw these definitions here. So cervical, of course, is pertaining to the neck. Spondylosis um, is ankylosis of a vertebral joint, which is a general term that we use all the time for degenerative changes due to osteoarthritis. And myelopathy 
is a general term that is used to think about, to describe functional disturbances or pathological changes in the spinal cord. So this term myelopathy is used to the, the old ICD-9 code has a general code of 336.9. It's a general term to use for any spinal cord disorder. It doesn't necessarily always, uh, doesn't, you, there are more specific codes, but it's often used to designate a non-specific lesion. Um, there is a separate code for myelitis as well, and we went over those causes. I'm sure you're very familiar with the cervical anatomy, um, and that's C1 through C7. You know that there are actually, although there are seven vertebral levels, there are actually eight cervical spinal roots. Um, and then you know, of course, that after C7 comes T1. Um, you can see as well in these pictures, both on the left and the right, um, another way of looking at the different components of the cervical spine just to get a, a sense of the landmarks. Here's a lateral view of an x-ray just to show again not only the vertebral bodies but where the facet joints are um, um, and where some of the, the articular facets and the superior facets are just to get a sense of the landmarks here. There are known normal canal and cord dimensions um, in the cervical spine, and they're listed here. They're not, I don't expect, just, just to give you a ballpark. And a good MRI study or a good CT study will give you, will measure these, and it's, these are all measurable, and you can get a sense from those studies um, if it's normal or not. Um, Spondylosis-related cord compression is, the, is really cord compression caused by a disc osteophyte complex, and that's a ventral spinal cord compression. Um, so it's uh, ventral is in, means in front, dorsal behind. Dorsal spinal cord compression may occur from thickened ligamentin, li ligaments, so ligamentin flavum can get calcified. A uh, neurosurgeon I worked with um, when I was working on Long Island at North Shore LIJ um, Netdown called Northwell Health System um, had uh, published extensive data, Nancy is her name, regarding calcified um, ligament, ligaments and, their, and how that may lead to compression of the spinal cord. Um, lateral spinal cord compression can occur by a hypertrophied spinal um, a, a facet joint, and this more than one problem can occur. Now, you know how osteophytes form. Um, how many people here are over 20? Okay, so I mean, o over time, um, and Dr. Glick, you know, you know this very well, um, but basically, you know nothing, right? We, yeah, I knew I get, I get you there, right? Um, no, but but we cannot escape the fact that in our twenties, um, we start to wear out our our discs. Our discs are like shock absorbing systems, and they're very hydrated. And we start the, the process of desiccation of these discs. This this will occur in all of us. It has occurred in all of us um, over time, and of course, trauma, genetics. Uh, um, a variety of other factors may accelerate uh, consequences, but over time, one of the ways in which a degenerative disc may help itself, because remember, the discs are there for shock-absorbing purposes in part, is for new bone to grow. That's what an osteophyte is. So none of us, be, let's say some of us here have never had any trauma to our spine other than walking and maybe occasionally exercising, but nothing bad, over time, 
there's still going to be desiccation, and we still may develop some degree of disc osteophytes. And we, some people may develop this without ever knowing. That's why you know, half the people who undergo MRI imaging who are asymptomatic, and that's probably a conservative amount, will have abnormal findings. And so I'll show you some suggestions in just a few minutes about people, what do you do when somebody presents with you know, not so significant symptoms, but yet the imaging studies support a cord compressive lesion. Do you operate on that person? Do you wait? And there is some data to support wait, not, not operating on those people. Um, because mild symptoms and treatment of such will not lead to great outcome in the the long run. But this is part of a natural process that that may result in significant neurological issues. So this is um, an example. LF um, refers to to lateral facet. You can can see um, the compressive lesion on the spinal cord, SC standing for spinal cord. You can see a lot. This is a sagittal view of of a similar, of the same person. You can see the O stands for osteophyte. And you can see um, that that cord is pretty compressed. It makes you wonder how that person is functioning. But isn't that amazing? Over time, if this happens over a long period of time, people may be completely normal. Um, you know, just amazing. It, how, so this is another example of why imaging um, eventually uh, has to be correlated with clinical, condition, with clinical uh, findings. Here's an MRI. Of, of a person with a compressive spinal cord um, abnormality due to cervical spondylitic changes. So, you know, the practical questions regarding this is what's the risk of developing myelopathy in somebody with cervical spondylitic disease? What's the risk of spinal cord injury? And do these risks warrant prophylactic spinal cord uh, surgical intervention? How many of you ha- have faced this issue? Somebody has a motor vehicle accident, right? And they come to you for the first time and, and you wind up getting an imaging study, and they have pretty significant cord issues. Or, and you wonder, well, of course, it probably didn't happen at the motor vehicle accident, but now that it's happened, they have neck pain, what do I do with that person? Um, when I, so uh, one of my family members, my first, one of my first cousin's father, I just, just as an anecdote, remember this, because I took care of him 20 years ago, um, had more of a compressive lesion than this. And he came to me, a very successful businessman, ran his own uh, building supply company, played tennis every day, was in his 80s when he came to me. And it was even smaller. The spinal cord diameter in that affected area was even smaller. And he was playing tennis several times a week and it just had some, some mild symptoms. And we held off doing anything surgically, even though he had an obvious spinal cord lesion, a uh, compressive lesion, because it didn't match his clinic. And he died several years later without ever having, I mean, in the back of my mind, I said, God, if anybody pushes him and he had any bruising or edema or anything else, wow, he'll, he'll never walk again. But the risk of doing surgery in an 80-year-old and the fact that it, it may not, with mild symptoms, have good outcome is something to consider as well. So just these two slides all, all, all come to this fi- final conclusion, these three slides, that... Um, Cervical spondylosis and stenosis is really a radiographic diagnosis, and prophylactic surgical intervention is probably not warranted in people with mild, mild myelopathy. Okay? But I think that that's probably. So, you know, the whole fact, it still goes back to um, the risk benefit ratio, and I don't think, um, and, I, and I, so I, I, this is not um, an absolute. Just further pictures to think about. 
the pathology. What, so you know, to talk pathologically, the spinal cord is flattened um, in, a, in, in a typical disc osteophyte complex. The spinal cord is flattened the AP diameter, but not the transverse plane at the level of the complex. The lateral columns are most severely affected with demyelination and gliosis of the white matter and loss of neurons and gliosis of the gray matter. So things are actually changing. There may be valerian degeneration of the posterior columns above the level of compression and at the lateral columns below it, of the lateral columns below it. So there are serious things pathologically occurring. Um, a Japanese group in, uh, over 20 years ago examined seven specimens um, from people who had been diagnosed with cervical spondylitic myelopathy and they found that the anterior horn cells and intermediate zones of the gray matter um, in the compressed segments were infected, affected in all seven patients. But not all seven patients were bed-bound or couldn't function. And so, it makes, again, it makes us appreciate. Uh, well, we know this from other, right? How many of you have ever heard of a, from somebody, um, well, we're in that age, fortunately, it doesn't, hasn't affected me, but we must know somebody who um, was evaluated for the first time for angina and chest pain and at that time was found to have 99% of each of their major coronary arteries clogged, and yet that was the first time that they remember having severe angina. So we, we have this amazing capacity in our body for things to, over time, occur, that by the time we finally find out, you know, realize that something is going on, um, it may be very startling to see the consequences, meaning in this case, changes in anatomy, in the case of a coronary artery um, disorder, um, major vessel blockage, even though symptomatically the person may have just been syntactic very briefly. The posterior and lateral funiculi, which are other portions of the spinal cord, were affected in patients with relatively slight damage, and the anterior and anterior lateral funiculi were actually severely, were, were more present in severely damaged people. Um, spinal cord compression between the disc osteophyte complex and the ligamentum uh, flavin um, will actually um, be maximized with extension of the spine when the ligament bulges into the canal and the spinal cord diameter actually increases. Uh, pathophysiology of myelopathy may occur with spinal cord tension, which increases as the spinal cord is tethered by ligaments, by dentate ligaments and the disc osteophyte complex, and it may be maximized with flexion when the dura changes its, its characteristics and the nerve roots and dentate ligament are tight. Um, there's been proposals that there's a vascular pathophysiology to myelopathy as well. Um, and compression of the anterior spinal artery, radicular arteries, and epidural veins have all been invoked. Um, this is an interesting uh, um, uh, uh, paper that kind of looked at molecular biology of, of uh, cervical myelopathy and spinal cord injury and actually looked at the role of oligodendrocytes dying and speeding up this. So, um, not, only a not only a compressive effect, but an effect on cellular function as a result. Um, so, um, this is where it's all at, right? We, we need to know what actually happens to people when they do have a myopathic uh, problem and whether or not we should offer conservative operative uh, therapy. So, we can't do clinical trials very easily, right? How do you do a clinical trial in, in, you can't do a randomized control study, you can follow people conservatively, but myelopathy is recognized, a cord, comp cord compression is confirmed. Um, um, you know, a clinical study would, might be unethical because it would withhold surgical treatment from people who might need 
So I mean, someone who has a severe myelopathy and symptoms, they're not really, it's not appropriate to not try to save their neurological function and improve their symptoms. So there aren't going to be, I can't see, for ethical concerns, the kind of clinical trials we might be able to do otherwise. So the natural history of cervical spondylitic myelopathy in general is not well understood. Um, it is well described that mild to moderate myelopathy symptoms that don't get worse over time due to cervical spondylitic myelopathy is not a, a, an abrupt indication for surgical intervention. That doesn't mean that people aren't advised to have surgical intervention. Um, and they may be because in, in, that, per, in that surgeon's opinion, um, doing it sooner may be, may be better than doing it when they're older and, and later, but that's not what the literature suggests. Uh, progressive moderate myelopathy is the best indication for surgical intervention. So someone is um, affected and they're getting worse. Okay, is non-operative management ever indicated? So when a level of no disability is targeted as a goal, the only people for conservative treatment are, are people who have mild disability at the time of their presentation. Um, so, in, in, so that's important, okay? So this in concluding this portion of the of the of, of the um, of this assessment, and just to wind down, and I think I'm going to finish a little bit early. There are multiple causes of myelopathy, um, and this is a term used to describe pathology of the spinal cord. A detailed assessment uh, should be carried out when assessing the person who's suspected of experiencing myelopathy, and uh, treatment is dependent on the etiology of the myelopathy and needs to be individualized. And I'll stop there. Um, I wasn't asked to talk about treatment in any detail, but I hope I gave you an idea of the differential diagnosis. Thank you very much. If there are any questions or comments or other opinions, I'd be happy to answer them. Yes, Dr. Glick. So, so I guess just to read, so, so of course it's a big room. The question is, um, if, if there are some conditions that are being um, considered for the possibility of myelopathy, and you, um, and some of them are pretty esoteric, how do you even think about it? So, so um, I, I guess I, I should have, I should have emphasized that, um, and I will emphasize now, um, that many of the, that, that in someone who is a certain age group with a certain um, uh, cr um, onset of symptoms and um, of, of a certain time frame, um, you're going to think that this is a cervical or this is a, a degenerative process. But many of the ca initial causes that at the beginning of this discussion that I listed are acute. So this is somebody who over a month period of time, several week period of time, is going to present with symptoms that are worsening or changing that they've never had, and they don't have neck pain. And they, right. And, they, and, and the issue is that they may also have, I mean, I would emphasize being thorough when you're evaluating somebody for the first time, it doesn't hurt to be thorough and look at the entire neuraxis to look at different etiologies. Because somebody who presents with what you think might be idiopathic transverse myelitis or may, may also have, um, we just, we just, 
we just um, um, we, we just took care of this person. Two weeks after he returned from a um, trip to Denmark, there's this guy in his 70s, where he was biked around a Danish, one of the Danish islands um, and backpacked on, and was, he was camping, and did, he, he started having uh, hand and foot com- uh, symptoms. He presented to our emergency room, um, and at that point, I think I had 15 people in our team, um, and he had a, quite a number of findings that suggested um, a spinal cord disorder. We decided to image his brain, cervical, and thoracic spine. He had a several-segment uh, myelitic picture in his transverse, uh, in his um, spinal cord, but he also had white matter lesions in his brain, and he wound up having positive antibodies for neuromyelitis optica. And so we had to treat him with IVIG. That was not successful. We treated him with plasmapheresis. That was not successful. And he's now in our, in our inpatient rehab unit. Um, but he went down rapidly, and he's 70 years old, so of course when we image his neck, of course he had some structural changes that if you only looked at his neck, you know what I mean, you may have said, oh, that explains it all. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the other thing that I've seen, and I, I really didn't mean to sound like a jerk when, at the beginning, to be honest, and I hope I didn't come across that way, but I've seen at least a couple of people who had lumbar laminectomies because they had pressure in their back and stiffness in their legs and an MRI of their lower back um, that looked bad enough for someone to operate on them. And if you had examined that person, we'd examined that person, they had three plus, four plus reflexes, clonus, um, you know, bowel issues, um, I'm sorry, bladder issues that all suggest a neurogenic or myopathic disorder. And yet, you know, the way, sometimes the way our referral patterns are is that people get, you know, have their primary complaint is low back pain, and we tend to focus on that. And if we don't examine the person and get the whole story, um, I just had, I just called somebody, I, I really try to take care of my patients when I'm away because we have a really great electronic system, but I ordered an MRI on someone who had had three failed spine surgeries, and she was referred to me to consider spinal stimulation or intraspinal analgesic therapy, and when I examined her, she obviously, I, I could show you the note, I have it with, you know, I, I can access that note, um, and I said, this person is presenting with presents has myelopathic findings on her examination. It's not upon further value of the questioning. She notes that she has always had neck pain since this particular injury, but it's, she's never been evaluated. And sure enough, she has a cervical spondylitic disorder, uh, um, uh, um, um, two areas with cord compression. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do with that, to be honest with you, because I'm not going to recommend surgery. Uh, I don't know if it's going to fix anything. But I sure wish that that was known about before she had gone, undergone the three spine surgeries. I mean, eyes wide open. You want to come up here and, uh, oh, oh, or I, I, do we have a mic? Because I, I don't think anyone can hear you if you say that. Can you stand up so people can at least, and shout? If, if people, that's Dr. Glick, who's one of our faculty members as well.
Okay, uh, uh, Anthony, you had a question? Is this, are you telling another rabbi priest joke? Or this, okay. No, no, he's got a, if you want to know rabbi priest jokes, they're great. Later, okay. Respond to injury. So I'm curious, you know, in the in the run of the mill, mild to moderate, you know, eight millimeter canal, you know, over one level or over a couple of levels, you're gonna you're gonna manage them conservatively. But if you see OPLL, right, does that change your approach on how well, you're gonna well, work with that? So person? I had the pleasure of working with Nancy Epstein, who published yeah. a, a large series of people who she she's a um, she and her dad, her dad is Joseph Epstein, and, and who was the head of neurosurgery at this institution for years, and um, they uh, uh, you know, taught residents, et cetera. Um, but she published a series of people in the United States who she operated on with OPLL um, who successfully. And, and so if in the right clinical setting, but the right clinical setting, this is where I think, um, and I don't know the answer to this, so that's why I said I don't want to sound like a jerk or anything like that, um, but if you don't know the whole, if we don't know the whole story, we can't tell the person um, the likelihood or what we expect to happen as the result of surgical treatment. So I have taken care of people I'm with who have significant. Oh, I mean, this is a classic story. It's a kind of digression, but I hope I answered your question. But somebody who presented to me in her 40s with a history of cerebral palsy, who um, was referred for a um, intraspinal baclofen delivery system because her primary care doctor and a general neurologist outside of, of our group um, thought that that would be the best thing for her because she was developing progressive spasticity. Oh my God is what Dr. Margarita is saying, okay? So, oh my God, because where is this going to go? You know where this is going to go. The and they were angry with me because she, she was living with her parents. She was not able to take care of herself. And her, she and her parents were angry with me because I, I, I was doubting their doctors. And I'm, I'm, no one is always right, but I had a hunch. And I said, we, can we, based upon seeing her, evaluating her, she had neck pain complaints. She was getting worse over time. CP, you don't get worse over time. You shouldn't get worse over time. It's a static condition in general. This dynamic change meant something else was going on. So I asked her to undergo an MRI of the cervical spine. She did. She had a huge cervical disc osteophyte complex. Um, and she wound up at least getting back to her baseline with surgery. But if someone had put an intrathecal baclofen system in her, maybe she would have gotten... I mean, you do, you get anybody work with intrathecal baclofen? Yeah, I mean, you give a test dose of that, it's going to work. <laughs> right? I mean, I do these all the time. But that doesn't mean it would have been the right thing for that person. So and this happens all the time. Other questions or comments? Well, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of the meeting.